0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. The church receptionist answered the phone, and the voice on the other end said, "Uh, Can I speak to the head hog at the trough? And the receptionist said, Excuse me? The head hog at the trough, uh, is he in? She said, sir, if you're talking about our pastor, you'll have to speak more respectfully. Uh, The reverend or pastor or just George uh, would be fine. He said, oh, sorry, well, I I have a check for $10,000, and I was hoping to give it to the uh, youth fund. The receptionist said, oh, looks like the big pig just walked in. Uh, (laughs) I resemble that comment. Um, our, Our topic this morning is money, and truthfully, it's a difficult topic to discuss because we're so guarded about it, and uh, perhaps we should be. We uh, find that uh, there are so many people who want to get our money. The Proverbs reflects that. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15, it says, The leech has two daughters. Give, give, uh, they cry. Uh, the leech that sucks blood out of us, uh, whether we have children or we just are opening our mail, or sometimes we feel like, wow, the only thing you, 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 that happens when you go to church is they're trying to get money from you. And I hope that's not the case here, but sometimes we feel that. Uh, but when we think about the way we feel about our own money, uh, we feel that there's just never enough. And Proverbs captures that as well. In fact, Proverbs 30, 30 verse 15 continues. It says three things. Are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. Sheol, which is the grave. The barren womb, a couple trying to get pregnant. Uh, The earth, ever thirsty for water and continually drying out. And the fire, that just keeps burning. Never says enough. What would enough look like in our financial world? When we think about our money, our money really isn't a thing, is it? It's kind of a placeholder for something we don't yet have. And our humanity and our culture tells us that real happiness is out there. It's something that you don't yet have. That's the message. And so our money really isn't a, a, a product. It's a placeholder for what we don't yet have. It's a, the currency of anxiety, I say. It's a, or it's, the, it's, it's a token for our worry. But I want to talk to you today about a gift A gift that I believe God wants to give each and every one of us. God truly is a giver. He's the one who has given us this abundant, creative life in this this planet, this creation, life itself. God is also the one, the redeemer. He's given us eternal life in his son, uh, Jesus Christ, forgiven us for our sins, died for us on the cross, resurrected and alive today so that we could be alive in him. He's given us spiritual life. His Holy Spirit is is with us here to draw us deeper into relationship with Jesus and that abundant life he came to give us. The Lord's agenda for you and me is not to take from us, it's to give to us. And so this morning as we talk about money, what I'm talking about is a gift that I believe God wants me and you uh, to receive, not something he's trying to take. Whatever money we have is his And he's given it to us. And I believe what he wants to do, he's trying to get us to enjoy what he's given us. And that turns out to be not so easy when we think about money and the worries that surround that. So why is money a major theme in the book of Proverbs? And it is. It's a major theme. And it's, it's not because the ancient sage is launching a capital campaign trying to build a building. Remember that the, the frame for the book of Proverbs is a conversation between a wise parent and his son. And we're asked to read these Proverbs through that lens. This is a loving parent who wants the best for his child. No parent tries to get money from their child. They, they, we give money to our children and we do it so that they can enjoy it. And that's God's motive for us with the abundance of creation as well, he wants us to have, to receive and to enjoy. and I want to suggest perhaps the greatest way to enjoy what we have is to learn how to share. let's look at Proverbs uh, chapter three, verses five through 10. I really have the whole um, uh, chapter in mind, but uh, I want to read together uh, verses five through 10 and you'll find that page 510 of the Pew Bible. and if you're able, would you stand with me let's read God's word together as an act of corporate worship. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 5. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and refreshment for your body. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. I wonder if, as you read that, you can see how this parent, this wise parent, is urging his child uh, to live with a generous heart. It seems to me that he calls him to a wise practice. Look at verse 9, which is sort of the culmination of this text. Honor the Lord with your substance. That word honor is uh, the same words often translated glory, and it's the word for heavy in uh, ancient Hebrew because a wealthy person was an honorable person, was a person with glory, and if that was conceived in very materialistic terms, you'd be heavy with, with riches, and uh, so you'd be respected in the community. It's the word for glory in the Old Testament. Glorify the Lord with your substance. That word substance is, is, is simply a word for, for wealth. So, the implication here is that there's an opportunity for us to add to God's glory with our wealth. All of it. All of our wealth. Everything that we have. Uh, we can, we can, when we give our wealth, when we take our wealth and we add it somehow to the weight of God's glory, then His reputation grows in the world. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to think about. And you ask, well, how uh, does the ancient sage expect his, uh, the youth of his day to do that. Well, we read the next verse. It's, this is a couplet here, and the second half of the couplet in Hebrew poetry also, oftentimes explains and, and sometimes expands on the first uh, verse of the couplet. So we, we read on, Honor the Lord with your substance, add to the weight of God's glory and reputation of the world with, with all your wealth, and by, I think we could also say, with the first fruits of all your produce. Now, first fruits um, refers to an agricultural society. The, the beginning of the harvest comes, and the first fruits is is, is the is the, the, the what you gather first. We read in other places in the Bible that this first fruits institution is also called tithing. This, by the way, is the only place that the cultic act of worship is, uh, is mentioned in the whole book of Proverbs right here. It refers to this institution, ancient institution that God gave Israel to tithe, to take one-tenth of the first, the beginning of the crop, the best of the crop, and to take that to the place where the Lord would put his name, the place of worship. You'll see first fruits and, the, and 10% uh, used interchangeably if you look at Deuteronomy 26. There Moses tells Israel before they cross into the promised land that uh, you'll take the first fruits, a tenth, and you put it in a basket and you'll take it to the priest in the place where God puts his name. And as an act of worship, this tenth will be given to God and will be used for the ministry and for the poor. This is a practice. It was a wise practice that God had uh, given Israel. The question we might ask ourselves as as New Testament people, as followers of Jesus Christ, is why that practice? What was it meant to accomplish in, in the Old Testament times? I think what it was meant to accomplish was a cultivation of a generous heart. As you grew up, engaged with this practice more and more, you begin to experience a kind of a joy in your heart. What's the use of having a harvest if you don't eat it with joy? And the mission of Israel uh, was to be a generous people. The patriarch Abraham, when God first called him into his purposes, said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to give you a nation and a people and a land. I will bless you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's people were meant to be a conduit of his grace for all the world. And so they would need to have generous hearts so that they wouldn't think that things belonged to them but that they were given to them kind of as a pass through trust to share with their neighbors and as a way of cultivating that experience of generosity and joy in the life of his people god said you take the first 10% and you trust me with that just give it to me and i'm going to show you what i can do with the glory with my glory in all of your wealth with the 100% as well now uh, uh, there's a, so I, I'm gonna, I'm suggesting this is a wise practice for Israel to cultivate a generous heart. And it's interesting that acts of generosity can also cultivate our heart as well. I, I've just learned about a new field called neuroeconomics. It's a cross between uh, brain science and economics. And there was a paper this summer presented out of the University of Zurich. And they uh, did a study, they took uh, 30 people divided them into two groups and they gave everybody a certain amount of money and they said, you keep some of this, uh, of the amount we give you and then you share the other part with a, another person. And you can keep as much and you can share as much as you want. But while they, these subjects were uh, doing the math and deciding what they were going to do with the sum that they'd been given, they were doing a brain scan with fMRI. And what they saw is that there's a place in the back of your brain that lights up uh, when you give, it's connected with e- empathy. It's that place of empathy I- I- in our brains. And th- the thing that was interesting to me is, the more that they give, the more that area of the brain lights up. As though that an act of generosity can begin to build empathy uh, in our lives. So it's interesting that here, uh, the book of Proverbs encourages us to cultivate generosity, a generous heart, when we're young. Uh, We just sang about an Ebenezer, which is kind of interesting how the Holy Spirit choreographs worship. um, Because I want to tell you about Charles Dickens and remind you, I hope it's not too long from Christmas to throw one last Christmas story in there. But Charles Dickens is this great 19th century social critic. He's very aware of the ills of the day and capitalism run amok. And he tells these brilliant stories. But he's also a student of the human heart. And Ebenezer Scrooge is the story of a man who has to go back to revisit the the key juncture points in his life that got him to where he is today. He goes back in time because of these ghosts of Christmas past and others uh, to see how he became the kind of person who misuses both funds and neighbor. And there's one scene that's particularly poignant in the story, and I I can't remember if it's in the... Uh, adaptations for television or not, but uh, in the book, The Ghost of Christmas Past takes Ebenezer. We, by the way, we use the word Ebenezer uh, in that hymn. Ebenezer is Hebrew for stone of help. So in the choir, informed me that there's some element of irony and intention uh, that Ebenezer is a kind of a reminder of, uh, of helpfulness. There's irony in, in the name, but he, he's taken into a room where he sees a young woman and he sees himself as probably a a college-age man. And these two have clearly been in love. But there's some lost joy between them now. The young woman looks at the young Ebenezer and sees his not-yet-scarred face after years of greed, and she says, you've changed. It's barely perceptible. And so he challenges, how have I changed? She says, in a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life. And this is interesting. She says, another hope as its great end. She tells the young Ebenezer, you fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged. I've seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, with the capital G, gain engrosses you. And he can't deny that. And so uh, with sadness, she uh, bids him a happy life, And then withdraws and Scrooge begs the ghost, Show me no more. Why do you delight to torture me? It's the story of a young man who begins to fear early in life and he begins to mitigate those fears by reaching out for wealth and acquiring as much money as he possibly can. But it starts to change. His heart starts to close in upon himself, the very opposite of cultivating a generous heart. And the ancient sage says, I don't want that to happen to you. So I give you this practice. It's a wise practice. But really the problem with money isn't money itself, is it? It's not that we hold money. It's really the way that we hold money sometimes. Or more, I would say more properly, it's the way that we let money hold us. Because I think that's the problem with young Ebenezer. He's allowed money to hold on to him. It's become his hope. And so this text doesn't just call us to a wise practice. More importantly, much more importantly than that, it calls us to a wise person. Let me show you that. By the way, you've heard people say that money is the root of all evil. Well, that is not in the Bible. The Bible tells us that the, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to read that. It's, it's how we hold money that's really the problem. And so here's this person This one whom we can love more than anything else. It will displace all other affections and begin to open our hearts up in generous ways. In verse uh, 5 we read, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. What I think we're seeing here is that our hearts will be generous, not because of our discipline, but when our hearts are glad. And our hearts will be glad when we connect them to the heart of God. So we ask, what's in God's heart? Well, here, I love this passage. If if you have your Bible open and you look back up here at verse 3, we didn't read this. The parent says, before I'm even going to talk to you about money, I'm going to talk to you about God. And he says, verse 3, do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, Loyalty and faithfulness are key words in the Bible. Emet and hesed, if you were reading them in Hebrew. They're two words that oftentimes come together. It's a technical phrase that's used for the heart of God. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and he said, let me see your heart. God covers him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by in the glory cloud and he proclaims his sentence name. The Lord passed before him, we read in Exodus 34, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, here are two words, steadfast love and faithfulness. These same two words get translated from the Greek into English in John's prologue in John chapter 1, where John tells us, Moses gave us the law, but Jesus shows us grace and truth love, and faithfulness. That's the heart of God, seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. And, and, and the parent is saying here, I want you to bind those. I want you. To, God has made a promise to you. He has engaged us in his covenant love. He loves us, and he will be ever faithful to his promise to us. And I want you to bind those two things, God's love, the way he feels about you, and his faithfulness, what he promises to do in your life, around your neck, and around your throat. Bind them. And I'm not even going to talk to you about wealth until I've talked to you about who God is. And and until you become convinced of the generous heart of God, we're not even going to talk about your own generosity. Because your own generosity will be nothing unless it flows out of gladness. This week, if you want a reminder of this text, you might take a string and you might put it just as a necklace around your neck or, or around your wrist, just as a reminder that you belong to Jesus Christ. And that there's nothing that can take you out of his love. There's nothing that can dissuade him from his faithfulness, even when you and I are faithless. He continues on. In the New Testament, there's really no need to reiterate this old practice of, of tithing because God's heart becomes so abundantly apparent in the grace of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself so clearly. There's so much grace that someone has said as thunder follows lightning, so generosity will follow grace. And the psalmist gets this in Psalm 33:21. 21. It says, hearts are glad in him because we trust in his holy name, who he is. It makes us glad. So there's a wise practice for ancient Israel. It's tithing. And then there's a wise person. He's the one who makes our heart glad. If we trust him, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. This begins to change our financial uh, equation. So what does this mean for us? Well, I realize as a pastor, I take great risk to even raise the subject of money. It's such a personal issue in our lives. Uh, and it, because I think it goes right to the heart of our deepest hopes and our deepest anxiety. We don't talk about it. If you notice, it's the one thing. We'll talk about everything else except for money. There was a Dear Abby column, and you know that Pauline Phillips just passed away recently. She once got a letter. It said, Dear Abby, I'm a 23-year-old liberated woman who's been on the pill for two years. It's getting expensive, and I think my boyfriend should share half the cost, but I don't well know him well enough to discuss money with him. Right? <laughs> That's the truth of our culture. And I want to be very personal with you. I want to suggest to you that the struggle with money is perhaps the greatest single struggle that I've experienced in my life, personally. And this is, this is a hard topic for me. And it's not because I haven't had money. Truthfully, I have had money. Uh, my parents have been very generous uh, with me. i have had great education, great opportunities. Um, there was a turning point in my life. It was a crossroads. If you've been listening to this series, you know that Proverbs is all about Crossroads. The space where wisdom and folly call out to the young. And when I was young, I was a sophomore in college, I, I sat at a crossroad. I had a summer job at a Fortune 500 company. I would take the, tr- I'd put on a suit in the morning. I'd take the train up to San Francisco. And uh, if you've been there, you know that 4th Street, the train stop, stops there. I'd get out of the train, but the tracks continue on. They go up an alley that's no longer used. And i used use that alley as a shortcut to get to my office. But there, uh, it's also used now by panhandlers and the poor. And I had to walk through there every day. And I was growing in my relationship with Jesus Christ, and I was challenged by the implications of my wealth and the poverty of these homeless people uh, for the love of Jesus Christ. And so I would oftentimes I would take an earlier train or a later train coming home, and I would sit there with uh, those who were panhandling. And my dad, by the way, who took the same route, would oftentimes come later, and he'd walk there, and he'd see his son wearing a suit, uh, Panhandling I, mean, I, I, I don't think it was a happy moment for him <laughs> But I knew so much that God's heart was so generous That he loved the poor He wanted to care for all people As I sat there I began to realize Well I'm poor too Not materially but in so many other ways And I believe God has a heart for me And if I can trust God's heart for the poor Can I not trust God's heart for me And if I can trust God's heart for me Then I can be generous with the poor It was a turning point for me. I mean, today we live in a world in which you and I, as Americans, are so privileged. 80% of the world, 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. 50% of of humans alive today live on less than $2.50 a day. God has a heart for you in the midst of that. He's calling you to a greater joy. Two implications, finally. First, Jesus is our best investment. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And he says, I want to be your treasure. Will you trust me? So why is so important? When we know the story of the rich young ruler, you know, and a man came up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, I've done all the commandments. And Jesus looks at him and he says, well, give everything that you have to the poor. And it's not that God calls us to give everything that we have to the poor in general, but he knew that that was the need of this man. And you see that in the penetrating question that Jesus asks him. He says, why do you call me good? Because he's a good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's asking him, what is good to you? What is your greatest good? He's asking about his trust. When you and I realize, come to the place where we believe Jesus is the greatest good for all of creation and for our lives, then we can say, you, you are our greatest good. And I can trust in you in the face of life's worries and fears. You be my treasure. You'll never be disappointed. I have never been disappointed any time I have ever made that decision in my life. Jesus is our best Investment. Put your theology ahead of your economy. The second thing is, we gain when we give. Uh, I heard a story recently about a guy's uncle Milton, who was a nominal Christian, came to church. They did a stewardship series, as sometimes they do in churches, and uh, he got so fed up with it. By the end, he was really angry, and he thought, "I'm going to prove that you really can put a, uh, outgive God." You know, you've heard that thing, you can't outgive God. He said, "I'm going to prove that you can." So this guy started tithing on his business, the gross, not the net. Uh, but it didn't work out the way he expected. And uh, a year later, he found himself chairing the stewardship committee. Because you can't outgive God. We gain when we give. I tell our kids that there are three purposes of money to, to spend and to, to save and to give, and all three of those purposes are, are essential for us. We have to do all three. God wants us to do, and do them with joy. But we won't do any of those three without a spirit of generosity as the foundation. And we'll have that spirit when we realize, you know, when we give, when we're generous, we cannot outgive God. This is true in the Old Testament where we read, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. This is Malachi 3.10. And thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. We're not supposed to test God, but in this one way, he says, go ahead and test me. Just give. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Jesus in Luke 6.38 says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11, it's not just an Old Testament thing. God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, Paul writes, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. You'll be enriched in every way for your great generosity. Let him lead you. How should you give? I don't know. Some of you are going to decide to tithe. Some of you already do. Some of you are on your second or third tithe. The important question is, do you trust in God? And have you experienced the gladness that comes from his grace? When you have, giving is the easy part. Trust him. You'll be able to throw open the windows of your life. And I will too. uh, Like Scrooge did. And shout out and say, I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. Let's pray. God, now uh, we do collect our tithes and offerings. And I just pray that anybody who doesn't feel a sense of joy in doing so would keep their check this morning. Because there's nothing we can buy from you. There's no negotiation with you. You you who gave us your own son want to give us everything. So allow us to give today as cheerful givers in a spirit of joy, responding to the gladness that comes uh, from a truly generous heart in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call two zero six five two four seven three zero one extension 117.